Today on Something You Should Know, some really cool things about bugs that you probably never knew before. Then, fear. What makes us so afraid of things like public speaking, or the monster under the bed, or that creepy guy in the elevator? That is exactly the type of fear that you should trust, and you could figure it out later. But at that point, I would say, get out of that elevator, because that's your collective wisdom, that's your intuition telling you, we're out of here. Also, something important to understand about your credit score and some of the fascinatingly gross and gory things in your everyday life. One of my favorite things is that we all have tiny arachnids that actually are living in our faces. These are called face mites. It's really freaky to think of these little tiny mites that are just living inside our pores. They spend their whole lives there. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, Happy New Year. If you are listening to this episode on or around the time it is being published, which is New Year's Day 2024. We start today with something we all have to deal with frequently, although maybe less in the winter time, but still we are surrounded by bugs, insects. They're everywhere. They're inside your house, they're outside in your yard, and often they're a nuisance. However, there are some things about bugs that are really worth knowing. First of all, technically the word bug and insect don't actually mean the same thing. A bug is a certain type of insect. Bugs have a stylet. It's a mouth that's shaped like a straw, which they use to suck juice from plants. So all bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs. According to the University of Florida Book of Insect Records, the most poisonous insects are wasps, bees, and ants. And the ones with the most toxic venom are certain harvester ants. Best estimates are there are over 1,017,000 species of insects in the world. 
Bug longevity varies widely. A lot of bugs, like houseflies and aphids, live only for a few weeks. Queen termites can live 50 years. Wood beetles can make it to 40. People often wonder why insects are so often attracted to light, like they'll fly to a street light or they'll come to your porch light. And actually, nobody really knows. The light seems to appear to mess up their navigation system so they can't fly straight. No one is exactly sure which is the fastest insect on Earth, but a horsefly was clocked at 91 miles an hour, so he's right up there. Cockroaches are the fastest runners. They can run at about 3 miles an hour. And that is something you should know. Everyone is afraid of something. We all have fears. It's part of being human. Fear serves us well by keeping us safe from danger. But some fears might also keep us from reaching our potential and enjoying life. I'm sure you've noticed that some people are just more cautious and fearful than others, while other people are more thrill-seekers than others. Why is that? Are we programmed that way from the start or not? And if you find that some fears are keeping you from doing important things in life, how do you overcome that? Here with some great insight into how fear works and how to make it work for you is Helen Odesky. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, an anxiety expert, and author of the book, Stop Fear From Stopping You, The Art and Science of Becoming Fear Wise. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. So we all have different fears. We all know what fear is. We know what it feels like to feel fear. But from your perspective, what exactly is fear? Fear is our appraisal of danger. So it's the estimate we make when we're faced with a situation or a potential situation about what might happen to us. And obviously fear is a good thing because if we weren't afraid of anything, we'd, we'd all be dead. Absolutely. So fear is life-preserving, and so we want to be able to differentiate between the good fear, the fear that keeps us alive, and the fears that stop us from living the kind of life we'd like to live. And so where do fears come from? Are we, is it evolution? Are we born that way, or is it the result of life experiences, or what? Yeah, so I think it's a part evolution. We have a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is our internal alarm system. And like any alarm, it's prone to false alarms. So it'll go off and make a giant noise inside our head and our bodies about something being dangerous. And when that happens, unless we literally think through it, if it's not an actual life-threatening danger, we have all the sensations of a life-threatening emergency built right in. Okay, so but here's an example. So I I don't like roller coasters because every time I get on a roller coaster, I, I think I'm going to die, even though objectively I know I'm not going to die. But I don't enjoy it because of the fear, whereas some people can go on a roller coaster and that same experience makes them happy, which, which I can't possibly understand. So sometimes the sensations that are produced are very similar to excitement. And if we label it as a welcome sensation, then our emotions tend to follow. So if you go into an amusement park with the idea, 
this is probably, if it's not going to kill me, it's going to emotionally scar me. You're going to feel that dread and you won't have an enjoyable experience. However, if you go in there, like a lot of teenagers do, saying, I've really been looking forward to it. It's summertime. Let's go. And they welcome that sensation of their stomach dropping. Then you're going to really feel exhilarated at the end of it. And so why are some people one way and other people my way? Is it perhaps it's some horrible experience we had or something or or are we just wired differently or I mean, is there a fear? Is there a fear spectrum and we're just kind of naturally on it somewhere just because it's who we are? Exactly. There is a spectrum and it is also related to your life experience. So if you think about it as our constitution, our nature, we are probably wired differently for the degree of risk-taking. Some of us are just more cautious by nature. So every time we go into a situation where something might go wrong, we might look at that roller coaster and say, hmm, I wonder what time the last time somebody fell from this thing or when was this inspected? If our mind is generally wired that way, that's our constitution. However, some people have had negative experiences. Maybe maybe you went on a roller coaster when you were a little kid and you really hated it or you got really sick. And so that experience is invoked every time you go, unless you have a series of positive experiences to counteract that. So that spectrum that you talked about that, that we're all on, and, and you know, I know some people who are, are extremely cautious and other people who are not really cautious, they're more thrill seekers. Does it tend to apply to different parts of life? Or if people are cautious, they're cautious in most things, and thrill-seekers are more thrill-seeking in most things? Or is it very individual depending on the situation? This is a really good question. I'll, I'll try to tease this out. So fear, for some people, is a constitutional trait. So they are fearful in most situations. However, I have worked with people who are risk takers in most of their life and may have had an experience of anxiety where in one area of their life, for example, public speaking, they tend to be very cautious and very afraid. So let's talk about the fear of public speaking, because I think we've all heard those stories, the surveys of that fear of public speaking is a bigger fear than the fear of death. And, you know, they repeat these surveys year after year, and it keeps coming back as the number one fear. Why? So a lot of that is what we pin onto public speaking. A lot of us have somehow grown up thinking that this is something that you have to be able to do and execute really well to be liked and to be accepted and to be considered a worthy human being. And so when we can't do it, we start feeling unworthy and less than. And so it's self-protective to say, "Uh uh-oh, maybe there's a way to get out of this. So I don't have to look less than or feel less than or not be accepted or feel rejected. But it does sometimes seem when you can't get out of it and you have to go through with it, a lot of people can't kind of buck up and do it, they sabotage themselves, which just reinforces the fact that they're, that they're, they didn't do a good job and now nobody accepts them and they've failed. 
Yes. And, and I would say a lot of that is because they're in such an anxious state that they're better off taking a few minutes to calm their system down and re-engage. And there's all sorts of tricks that we can talk about to do that. But bottom line is if you are in the middle of a very high anxiety state, we're talking eight, nine out of 10, it's very hard to get fluent speech out. You're feeling lightheaded. You're feeling like your world's about to crash around you. Uh, and it's very hard to produce something that sounds coherent and interesting and relatable. And so what are some of those tricks of the trade that, that will help people um, deal with that in the moment? So I think the first few minutes are really crucial. I think once people get into it, most of us are able to just go on and talk about the topics we need to talk about. So one of the things that I like to suggest to my clients who are anxious is, hey, start by asking a question. By the time your audience engages with you and you take the 30 seconds to a couple minutes that that takes, you're already engaging with them just by virtue of needing to listen and pay attention to what they're telling you. So you're taking the focus off of you. Uh, the other thing that, that I like to say is ask people or tell them simple things like how much you want to be there and how happy you are to talk about whatever you're talking to them about, because that's familiar to you. You know, introducing yourself, saying who you are, saying a little bit about yourself is very familiar. It's automated. It doesn't require much scrutiny. Right. You know who you are, so that should be pretty easy to talk about. It's pretty easy and it's pretty hard to criticize somebody just by telling you, hey, this is my name, this is what I do, this is where I'm from. So don't launch into the content, introduce yourself. And then my third thing that I would say is have a bottle of water. Nobody's going to judge you. If in, at some point in the presentation, you say, excuse me, I, I need to get a drink of water. That yeah. slows you down paces you, and lets you get right back in. So I want to talk about that fear that people have. You're walking down the street, and somebody's coming at you the other way, and you get that feeling. Something's not right here. Has, it, has mm -hmm. that been studied, and is that a thing? That is a thing, and that's actually a, a sign of danger that we teach people to pay attention to. Because if you're walking and all of a sudden you get that spidey sense, that probably is a real danger alert. But what could it be? And you should what, heed that. What could it possibly be? Just because someone is walking down the street at you and, and maybe mm -hmm. they look disheveled or they look, you know, in, in your interpretation, dangerous. Yeah. It doesn't mean they are. That's true. However, what we know about fear is it's pre-verbal. So if we're looking at using our fear wisely and being fear wise, what we're looking at is saying, you don't need to justify why you're afraid in the moment. It's better to cross the street at that point and figure it out later. It could, it could be your internal bias, but it could be your life preserving sense saying, get out of there. And I would rather encourage for personal safety that you got out of there and then thought about why that happened versus you being put in danger. Because a lot of us have that internal dialogue of, oh, you're being silly, you, uh, you, you know, grow up, you, you're fine, mm -hmm. nothing's going to happen, and, and probably most of the time nothing would happen, but still, uh, how many times have we all gotten in an elevator with somebody we 
hesitated to do, or we saw that person on the street, or something made us feel uncomfortable. That is exactly the type of fear that you should trust, and you can figure it out later. But at that point, I would say, get out of that elevator. There was something off. You don't need to know what it is. It's almost as if you trust that more than you do your verbal process at that point, because that's your collective wisdom. That's your intuition telling you, that's it. We're out of here. Fear is our topic today, and I'm speaking with Helen Odesky. She's a clinical psychologist and author of the book, Stop Fear from Stopping You. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Helen, talk about the fear of failure, because a lot of times people will use the fear of failure as the reason why they didn't try something because they didn't want to fail. So is the fear of failure a real fear, or is it just an excuse to use when you don't want to do something? The fear of failure is really the fear of what's going to happen when something doesn't go the way that we want it to. And in my experience as a psychologist, it's usually a fear more of how hard we're going to come down on ourselves versus how hard somebody else is going to come down on us. So we might phrase it to ourselves, oh, nobody will let me live this down. But really, it's probably a projection of how we feel and whether we're going to let ourselves live it down. Well, it does seem a lot of times people fear failure. And when they fail, they can't shake it, that they failed and they feel horrible that they failed. Is that part of that? Is, is that what we're trying to avoid? Yeah, we're trying to avoid that because that doesn't feel good. I and mean, we all want to knock it out of the park every time. But we also know that even professional ball players don't usually have a rating of, of anything above 50%. So if you're looking at the Michael Jordans and the LeBron James, they don't dunk the basket every time. And so this idea that we have to it is this myth that a lot of us walk around with. Let's talk about the fear of rejection. I think that's one that affects a lot of people. It keeps people from, you know, asking someone out on a date. It keeps people from asking for a raise. They, they don't want to get rejected, so they just don't. So what's that fear? That's a basic self-protective thing. So we want to be around people, and it's a good rule of thumb, actually, that are accepting of us. So when we're around a lot of negativity or rejection, we tend to recoil. And if we've 
have those experiences, we tend to get self-protective and avoid those situations. So in order to overcome that, one of the things that I teach is that we have to start looking at rejection as not personal. So someone may not be rejecting you, particularly if we think about dating. They've just met you. They don't really know you. So whatever they're imposing on you probably has more to say about them than it does about you. And so if you can find a way to look at those situations in neutral terms, so I'm just looking for somebody where it's a goodness of fit, where I feel comfortable, where they like me and I like them and it feels easy, then I think you depersonalize it from that self-talk that we get often, which is, oh, they didn't think I was good looking enough or they didn't think I was smart enough or funny enough or all those, those tapes that start playing in our heads. So one of the, the interesting fears that, that really is, seems like a colossal waste of time is the fear of what other people think of you, because you can't make everybody happy and why should you try? But still, you know, many of us worry about that. We want to be liked. We want people to think well of us. And, and why is that so? Im- well, I mean, it's obvious why it's important, but, but it, it does seem like kind of a waste of time. Uh, It absolutely becomes a waste of time. And it is important because if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, if you weren't accepted, you lost resources. You couldn't get access to food, shelter, or a suitable partner so you could reproduce. So you really had to think about that and make sure that you fit in with the group. Now, a lot of us take it to the extreme and start worrying about what people might think about our hairstyle or our choice of, of job, or even what, what, what type of car we have, right? And if we want to get better with trying to say, okay, it really doesn't much matter what my neighbor thinks about this situation, because it's important that I'm okay with it, and I am in concert with myself, and feel good and accept my choice. One of the things that is interesting to me about fear is that if you look back at all the things you've been afraid of, whether it's, you know, monsters under the bed or, you know, whatever, almost none of them were worth being too upset about. Obviously, some would be, but it's it's like Mm -hmm. we don't really learn from that, that, that life isn't necessarily as fearful as we think it is but it doesn't typically change our behavior. We still act that way. And so I would say it brings us to this interesting idea of what do we consider courage? Do we consider courage to be the absence of fear or do we just consider fear as part of human condition, notice it when it's helpful, and then decide to live life with it, knowing that it will pass just like our fear of monsters under the bed and that if we act with it, we stand to gain a whole lot more life choices and opportunities. So what does it mean then to be courageous? What do you do with the fear and still act courageous? For example, you're petrified to speak in public, so maybe you don't speak in public. Other people might be petrified to speak in public, but they do it anyway. So what are they doing with their fear? How are they moving it over and allowing themselves to go speak in public? So what you do is you have to acknowledge what it is. So it's not life-threatening, it's a fear. 
you have to accept that sometimes you're going to feel that, and then you have to act with purpose regardless. So if your purpose that day is to tell your company about some bad news and you're understandably afraid of their reaction, then you would do that regardless of whether or not you felt afraid. And that, in my book, would demonstrate courage. So when you have a fear that you've learned, you're afraid to go in the water because something bad happened to you, you're afraid to go on roller coasters because you had a bad experience. When you have a fear that you've learned, is the trick to unlearn it or is the trick to learn something else? I mean, how do you, how do you cope with that fear and, and move on? So we can have an experience where danger learning takes place. And then we can have experience where safety learning takes place. So danger learning is just like it sounds. is the assessment where we say, "Uh uh-oh, if I go in the water, there's a possibility I might drown. Water equals danger. Safety learning is if I go in the water, I better be around other people because that creates safety. Because if I do have a problem, somebody has a chance to help me out. Safety learning is taking a swimming class. Say, okay, it's really not dangerous to be with your head inside the water. So the more, we can't undo danger learning, but the more safety learning we engage in, we create an equality between those two parts of our brain and we can overcome some of these prior experiences that we've had. And a lot of people want to unlearn the danger, but it's like learning a language. You're never going to unlearn, if you're an English speaker, you're never going to unlearn English If you learn French, you'll know both, and you'll be able to communicate on par in both, potentially. I don't know if you can answer this or if there's been research that you you know off the top of your head, but that spectrum that we were talking about before, Mm -hmm. is there a, a sweet spot where most people are? Are most people kind of fearful? Are most people not very fearful? Do you get a sense of that? I mean, obviously, the people you talk to are probably fearful or they wouldn't be coming to see you, so... You probably have a skewed view, but is there research (laughs) on this? There's research on what's called the big five traits, one of which is openness to new experience, which you can look at as risk-taking. And that trait, those big five traits, stay stable over a lifetime. Now, there's a range within them, but we tend to have a spot there. You know, I wonder overall how people feel about their fears and what i mean by that is for example as i said in the beginning you know i'm afraid of roller coasters i don't like them and i don't have any big desire to change that that i'm perfectly fine with that fear mm-hmm. yes yeah, so that's where again brings us to self-acceptance as long as you can accept that it's okay to be who you are and play to your strength and maybe tweak some skills that you're hoping to expand, you're in pretty good shape. Well, as I listen to you talk, it, it, it's so interesting how fears are so important in the sense that they, they keep us safe, they keep us out of harm's way, and yet if we're not careful, we can let fears kind of keep us from life. And it's important to understand the difference and how to manage those fears. My guest has been Helen Odesky. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and author of the book, Stop Fear from Stopping You, The Art and Science of Becoming Fear-Wise. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Helen. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for having me on. 
When you were a kid, things that were kind of gross were probably more interesting and intriguing to you than they are now. You know, things like bugs and worms and smells and odors. And, and creepy is cool when you're a kid, but then as we get older, eh, it's not so acceptable to talk about it. Unless, of course, you're Erica Engelhaupt. She knows all about gross and creepy and gory things. Erica is a writer and editor for National Geographic and author of the book Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. Hi, Erica. Thanks for having me on. So what's a nice grown-up like you <laughs> doing looking at creepy and gross things? You know, I guess if I had to sum it up, I would say I like answering the kinds of questions that people are afraid to ask. <laughs> so, you know, anything that's kind of creepy, crawly, gross or weird, I'm, I've always been very curious about any of that stuff. Frankly, I think that all of us are, um, you know, I don't think we ever really lose that childlike curiosity with gross stuff. I think we just maybe get too embarrassed to talk about it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So, so what's like one of your, just to kick it off, one of your favorite gross things to talk about that hopefully isn't too gross, but. <laughs> well, everyone's, you know, measure of what's too gross, I guess, can be different. We're all kind of sensitive to different things. But I, I think what it pers personally, one of my favorite things to talk about, and that is often very surprising to people that they didn't know, is that we all have tiny arachnids that actually are living in our faces. And these are called face mites. Um, their, their scientific name is Demodex, and we all have them as far as scientists can tell. Uh, and they're probably not doing us any real harm, but it's really freaky to think of these little tiny mites that are just living inside our pores. They spend their whole lives there. And do we think they're serving some sort of purpose? Well, it's entirely possible that they are. When scientists first discovered these little things living in our pores, they were pretty horrified. And they have been found to be higher, higher concentrations of them in people who have rosacea. So for a long time, it's been thought that face mites might cause rosacea. But scientists who I talked to said that it's also entirely possible that we have more of a symbiotic relationship with these face mites. They might be eating bacteria in our pores, you know, doing some housekeeping <laughs> by eating up all of the oils and things that are in our pores. And um, so we may be feeding them and they may be giving back to us by, you know, doing that kind of housekeeping. I actually got to see my own face mites, which was a big thrill. I mean, it's one thing to know that they're in there, but to actually see them was a lot of fun. So I, I went to a lab and the scientists you know, scraped some oil out of my pores, put it on a microscope slide, and we took a look. And sure enough, there they were. And they're just like these little skinny, almost like a shaped like a plug because they fit inside a pore. And then they have these eight little itty bitty legs wiggling around. <laughs> so it's amazing to think that those little critters are just in all of our faces all the time. And for the most part, they're just doing their thing and we don't even know they're there. Yeah, that's kind of gross. <laughs> Well, you know what's interesting? As you're describing these face mites that are living in my pores, which is just so gross, but my reaction is that, that, that that's disgusting. I think that's the, the reaction of a lot of people. And yet, 
so much of nature is kind of gross. Why, I wonder, are we so disgusted by these things that are really just part of nature? Disgust is a pretty universal emotion. Uh, everyone feels it. People around the world even make the same kind of facial expression for something that's gross, uh, where you kind of scrunch up your face and nose and maybe even stick your tongue out if it's really gross. And we tend to be disgusted by the same kind of things uh, for the most part. So things like insects and pests, you know, they can potentially carry diseases and um, might be a sign that something's dirty. So, uh, you know, it makes good sense that we might be grossed out by those kinds of things. And we're grossed out by, you know, any kind of sign of illness or, you know, bodily fluids, things like that. So, you know, it really makes sense that the kinds of things that gross us out tend to be things that could potentially harm us or make us sick. That said, you know, we're surrounded by these things all the time. <laughs> and I guess, you know, one little funny story that I would tell about that is how many people are actually going into emergency rooms with insects that have gotten into their ears or even up their noses. I mean, this was just a kind of a weird little thing. I've always heard these stories of you accidentally swallow eight spiders a year or there's, you know, some kind of numbers. And I, I think that those things are mostly made up. But it is true that it's pretty common for doctors to see people coming into emergency rooms with roaches in their ear. And I thought, you know, I could give people one little piece of practical advice based on this, which is that something you should know is that if a roach does get in your ear, it's probably going to be while you're asleep at night. And what you want to do is keep that roach alive until you can get to an emergency room to get it out. You know, I read a really funny story about uh, doctors who tried to test ways of getting roaches out of people's ears. And this is, I think this is something that everyone is horrified thinking about, but it happens so frequently that doctors have actually written about the best ways to get roaches out of people's ears. <laughs> And why do they go in there in the first place? <laughs> well, probably because your ear has wax in it, and that wax makes some of the same kind of fatty acids that are in meat. And so probably roaches are smelling that and, you know, going in to investigate, and then they just get stuck. So, yeah, I, I mean, I know it's horrifying to think about, but this is something that happens to lots and lots of people. There are tens of thousands of people that go into emergency rooms every year with something in their ears, and roaches tend to be the, <laughs> the thing that, that is um, one of the most common types of critters that tends to try to crawl in. Well, you were talking a moment ago, it's so interesting that we're, we're grossed out by so many things like this. But other animals aren't, you know, my, my, mm -hmm. uh, if I see a dead animal in the road, I mean, I kind of look away, that's kind of gross. My dog will go right up to it and sniff it and maybe take a bite and, you know, I mean, if I let it, but it, right. it, it's Absolutely. just hu humans are grossed out, but nobody else is. <laughs> that's right. You know, humans have a really finely tuned sense of disgust. We probably have the best sense of disgust of, of any animal, I think you know, so greatly that we have this sense of manners. And when you think about it, manners are really largely something that we've developed to protect each other from disgust.
to protect each other from being disgusted. We don't want to make noises that are <laughs> that are disgusting to other people. We 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 don't want other people to see things, you know, that would be potentially disgusting to them. So that sense of manners really protects us from from disgust and as as far as we know, we're the only animals that have that sense of propriety. Well, one thing that grosses out a lot of people is the sight of blood. And I know you talk about bloodletting and and how that became a thing to treat illnesses. So talk about how how that became a thing. Bloodletting has been around for so long, you know, for thousands of years. And I think that people probably started thinking about bloodletting because, you know, so much of our medicine was based on the idea of, the humors and our different body fluids being in balance or out of balance. And so the idea was, you know, maybe you have too much of one thing and you need to get rid of some of it. So bloodletting has been around for a really long time. It may even be one of the reasons why George Washington died. He was, he was very sick and um, he had a doctor who drained so much of his blood that doctors now look back on it and and think that that probably contributed to his death. One common gross thing that people think about, especially when they're about to go into a pool, is, you know, people pee in the pool. And that's kind of gross. Is it kind of gross? So scientists have actually looked at what happens when you pee in the pool. And the news isn't great because when you in the pool, all of the uh, that urine contains a lot of nitrogen and urea, and that can combine with the chlorine in a pool to actually create some very toxic chemicals. One of them is even classified as an agent of warfare, <laughs> that's cyanogen chloride. And so when you pee in the pool, you're not just grossing other people out, you're actually producing very tiny amounts of, you know, chemical warfare (laughs) substances um, that can be quite toxic. Now, how much pee would it take in a pool to actually, you know, harm someone with these substances? Well, we don't know, but it would be probably quite a lot. Uh, However, I would say that there's probably no amount of you know, chemical warfare agent that you really want in your pool anyway. And and isn't there some advice that like if you get a jellyfish sting, you should pee on it, that that would that would help it somehow? Yeah, this keeps going around. And, um, <laughs> you know, for a long time, people have said, if you get a jellyfish sting, you should pee on it, uh, for example, or that if you have a, a deep wound and you don't have access to clean water that you should pee on it. The idea is that urine is sterile, doesn't have any bacteria in it, and therefore it's it's almost as good as, you know, clean, pure water for washing out a wound or something. That is absolutely not true. <laughs> There's definitely bacteria in all of our urine. Urine is not sterile. Uh, neither is almost anything else in our body, for that matter. There are bacteria literally in pretty much every part of our body including even in the brain, uh, there are bacteria and viruses that can get in there. So um, so certainly don't pee on things <laughs> uh, as a, and thinking that it's so clean and pure. Um, and also the thing with jellyfish, jellyfish release these stinging cells. And 
those are actually sensitive to any kind of change in salinity. So by peeing on a jellyfish sting, you might actually make it worse by triggering, triggering more of those stinging cells. So what you should actually do instead, if stung by a jellyfish, you're probably close to salt water. That's what you would want to use. You'd want to use seawater to rinse off. <laughs> you say we should be eating insects. What, why, why, would I, why would I want to do that? So eating insects is one of those things that was a challenge, even for me. And, you know, I have a background studying environmental science, and I want to do the right thing for the environment. So I went to a conference that was all about eating insects and scientists who were studying this and um, people who have started an, a whole industry in edible insects, both for humans to eat and for the animals that we raise as livestock to eat. And... What they are finding is that it is very environmentally friendly when you think about how many insects you can grow in a, in a small area and how efficiently you can grow them. It's much better for the environment than raising hogs and cattle and all of these things that we do. But there's that disgust factor. Like I said, you know, it's pretty common for people to be grossed out by insects and bugs. So the idea of eating them, if that's not part of your culture's cuisine is, you know, really repulsive to most people. And I have to admit that even for me, it was hard to tr give it a try. I went to this whole bug buffet where a chef had prepared all different kinds of food using insects, you know, in his cuisine. And that's what he specializes in. So it was really nice stuff. But for me, it was still it was still a little hard to give it a first try, you know. Um, but I will say it really it wasn't too bad. Once you kind of get past that ick factor, if you just kind of focus on it like, well, it's just another little animal, you know, it's not really much uglier than a, a shrimp, for example. So if you just kind of focus on that and think about it, and it really, it doesn't taste like anything um, <laughs> all that unusual for the most part, like crickets, those were pretty easy. We had mealworms, we had even ants. Ants had a surprisingly light lemony kind of taste when they were sprinkled on top of something. The only one that really was hard for me and that kind of grossed me out was he had served a uh, silkworm pupae, which is like the kind of like the teenager form of a of a silkworm uh, in between a, a baby and an, and an adult. And that was, you know, a couple of inches long and segmented and really looked insecty. And I have to admit that one was pretty tough for me to swallow. What did it taste like? You know, <laughs> a lot of it was about the texture because it was um, it was a little, it was bigger. And so it was a little bit meaty, but on the squishy side. It was kind of a unique taste, but, uh, you know, almost um, a little bit papery to me. It wasn't that it tasted so bad necessarily. It was more that the texture was like squishy, like I was really eating a bug at that point. Well, I know it came up in a conversation on a previous episode, but you know, one way to eat bugs like crickets is cricket flour, and you can buy cricket flour at Amazon or, or lots of places. Well, you know, cricket flour is also really high in protein, and so a lot of people are using that for things like making protein-rich smoothies and things like that. And I've tried that. That was one of the things that they were um, talking about a lot at the Eating Insects conference that I went to. And, you know, I tried some of that in a drink. It 
you can't even really taste it. You wouldn't even know. It, it just tastes like protein powder, <laughs> like any other kind of commercial protein powder you would buy. And yeah, so that's a great kind of, again, an environmentally friendly way of, you know, adding some protein to your diet. And again, like once you try it, I find it's not so gross. Once you've, once you've tasted it and said, oh, actually it tastes like nothing, then, you know, I think most people uh, are more afraid of trying something uh, than they really need to be, you know, give it one shot. And if it's really not that bad, I think you'll find that you're not so afraid of it the second time around. You know, one thing I saw in your book, one thing that, that really kind of grossed me out was these fatbergs, these not ice, it's like icebergs, only they're made out of fat. So lurking under the sewers, these are giant mountains of fat, grease, and whether it comes from you know, what goes down toilets to what doesn't go down grease traps in restaurants and things like that. These can build up into these massive clogs that in London have even been found to be as big as city buses in some cases. But it's not just London. You know, these have been found in cities across the U.S. New York City has had some famous fat works as well. And it's another area where scientists are trying to figure out how these fatbergs form, what causes them, how to prevent them. And, you know, one of the biggest things is just getting people not to put so much gunk down into the sewers. It's amazingly hard. You know, people flush. There are all these uh, wet wipes that say they're flushable. They're really not. And so they develop into these just enormous accumulations that have been probably around you know, since as long as we've had sewers. The Romans, for example, had sewers. Famously, they developed a sewer system and they used to send slaves down to go clean all of this gunk out. These days, uh, you know, <laughs> we have to send people down with heavy equipment to blast the stuff out. Something else that plagues major cities often is rats. And you know, I get creeped out by rats. I've never liked rats. And then we hear these stories about how they are getting so big and so indestructible and they're the size of a small dog. So can you can you talk a bit about rats? <laughs> so rats are the ultimate survivors. Rats today are all over the world. Anywhere where there are people, there are rats. And so in that sense, I guess you could say that they're taking over the world, <laughs> but they're really adapted to live alongside humans these days. You know, they, they really are dependent on us for the most part for their food and shelter. What's amazing is that as much as we hate rats, we know so little about them. We know so little about their actual ecology and how they live in the wild um, in this case, the wild for rats is now mostly, you know, in our homes and in our cities. So one ecologist even told me, you know, she said, we probably know more about the ecology of polar bears than we know about rats. And so they have been trying to study and understand rats and how rats move around different places and what causes, um, you know, large infestations of rats to happen in some places. And one of the big things is that when you try to eradicate rats, when you try to kill all the rats in one place, they j will just move to another. 
And so, you know, you'll end up with with kind of a wave of rats that moves, <laughs> that can move around, you know, from city block to city block. Well, we all are surrounded by gross and creepy things. And you know what's interesting is, is like, the more we talk about them, and the less creepy they sound. Erica Engelhoft has been my guest. She is a writer and editor for National Geographic, and her book is called Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Erica. Thanks. Take care. Everybody's concerned, or should be concerned, about their credit score. But there are some things about your credit score you may not understand. First of all, there are five major factors that have an impact on your FICO credit score. They are payment history, your level of debt and credit utilization, the age of the credit, the mix of the credit, and the number of credit inquiries. 30% of the score is utilization, and a lot of people don't really understand what credit utilization means. For example, you might think that if you pay off a credit card, the financially responsible thing to do would be to close that account. But credit utilization, remember that's one-third of your credit score, means how much of your available credit are you currently using. So you want to have a good portion of your credit available that's not being used. If you close the account, you lower the amount of available credit, which could hurt your credit score. Now, some cards charge a fee if you don't use their card for a long time, so you want to watch out for that and try to use the card once in a while to avoid that charge. But having credit that you don't use is generally a good thing. And that is something you should know. There are lots of things we discuss on this podcast that I bet your friends would like to hear, so please tell them about this podcast, share the link with them, and let them listen as well. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.